This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Catherine Jones was only 13 and her brother Curtis 12 when they shot and killed Nicole Spites in 1999. The plan was to kill Spites as well as two family members. The reason... The youngsters were being sexually abused by one of those family members. Child welfare workers found evidence of abuse at least twice, and yet the abuser was allowed to remain in the same home with them. The brother and sister, the youngest at the time to be charged as adults with murder in the country, pled out and were sentenced to 18 years in prison. They had to grow up behind bars. America's prisons are overflowing, but many who are kept behind bars are just children. Thousands of youths are tried as adults in the U.S. every year, and some are given life sentences in the country's harshest jails. Many then find themselves becoming victims of sexual violence and suicide. Authorities in western Pennsylvania have charged 11-year-old Jordan Brown as an adult. The boys will have one trial together in adult court. The length of his sentence is also the length of his life. They're not old enough to drive, drink, or vote, but in America, kids as young as seven years old can be tried as adults. Our mission at Death by Incarceration is to shed light on a system that viciously targets marginalized people. The United States is quickly moving back to the crime and punishment model that made us the most incarcerated country in the world. We feel our message and show are more important than ever. This country has a human rights crisis. It's not about politics. It's about what our moral obligations are to our fellow citizens and how we treat other human beings. In the words of the great Bell Hooks, for me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? During our first season, we realized that most of our conversations revolved around men, virtually ignoring the impact mass incarceration has on women and girls. Suave and I have interviewed over 20 women for our next series of episodes. We have some amazing stories to share and are proud of the work we've done to prepare for the next phase of our show. Over the past quarter century, there has been a profound change in the involvement of women within the criminal justice system. This is the result of more expansive law enforcement efforts, stiffer drug sentencing laws, and post-conviction barriers to re-entry that uniquely affect women. The female incarcerated population stands over seven times higher than it did in 1980. More than 60% of women in state prisons have a child under the age of 18. In this episode, we had the honor of speaking with Katherine Jones. Katherine is the co-director of Outreach and Partnership Development at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. In this role, she supports members of the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network, particularly women. Catherine acts as a mentor and first responder to ICANN members as they transition into their new lives. She's also a spokesperson for the CFSY and ICANN in the media, and speaks to groups throughout the country in support of their public education and advocacy efforts. Catherine herself is a formerly incarcerated youth. 
She went to prison at the age of 13 for murder. She was not released until the age of 30. She spent much of her time incarcerated educating herself and came home with a degree and several certifications, including a law clerk certification. In collaboration with Fresh Start Ministries, she designed and taught a curriculum for abused women focused on the emotional healing and building of self-confidence. Her experiences with the penal system as a child sparked a passion inside of her to be the voice for those she left behind and for the ones who will come after her. When not wearing her advocacy cape, Catherine relishes her role as mommy to her two beautiful children. Your call to action this week is to check out cfsy.org, go to the Get Involved tab, and simply get involved. Thank you so much for listening. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself and giving us some context about who you are and your experience with the with the system. Well, my name is Katherine Jones. I am the co-director of outreach and partnership development at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. Also a very proud ICANN member of six years. I became an ICANN member because I had the unfortunate distinction of being the youngest female in America to be sent to adult prison in 1999. I was charged with capital murder. My process was very swift. I took a plea within 10 months to the lesser charge of second degree murder and was sentenced to 18 years in prison followed by life probation. Me and my brother were co-defendants at the time. The facts of our case did not become public. It wasn't until years later when I connected with a professor at FSU, Professor Nino, and he heard about our story and hooked us up with a reporter who did a truth-finding campaign on my behalf, and the facts of my case became public. The abuse that me and my brother endured for years prior to that was the main cause of our charges happening came out, but of course by then it was too late, <laughs> and I served 16 years and eight months before I was released at the age of 30. The transition was hard. The reality of freedom was not the same as what I fantasized about for almost 17 years of my life, and the reality that I was going to wear a scarlet letter F to society for the rest of my life and still impacts me into this day. And that, that is why I do the work that I do. That's why I advocate for other people like me who grew up in prison and came home after serving more time incarcerated than we did in our free world life. And it's my passion to help other people not only transition, but hopefully abolish juvenile life without parole in the United States. We're the only country that does it. And it's cruel, it's unusual, it's it's detrimental, it's not rehabilitative. <laughs> There's no benefit to sit in a, sentencing a child to die in prison. It's also condemned by international law, which is just crazy that this country continues to do this in certain states. One of the things we talked about before Suave connected, and I'd really love to hear, as you know, our season currently that we're recording is all about women. And something that you pointed out, you and your brother have been talking about between the two of you is the differences between your experience incarcerated and who the predators were in prison and who you had to fear while you were doing time in state prison. And I just want to go back. You were 13 when you went to a women's prison in the state of Florida, right? Okay. So maybe just talk about that experience and the differences that you, that the two of you have kind of come to find out as you've discussed this issue. These conversations don't just come from my brother, my ICANN brothers, I've heard, I've heard their experiences and the threat seemed to be more so their peers, um, the other people that they were incarcerated with, the threat of violence. I was next door to a men's prison. There was constantly a life lighting 
happening, some type of stabbing. We did their laundry. We used to see the locks and the slocks and the blood on their clothes. Whereas in the women's prison, women are, are more nurturing. We tended to gravitate to each other, support each other, nurture each other. It was the correctional officers that were the biggest threat to the women. It was the correctional officers who used their power and their authority to either sexually abuse, harass, or beat on the women. It was not uncommon for male correctional officers to, in exchange for personal hygiene items, if you needed pads or tampons, to offer them to you if you performed some type of sexual favor or showed your breast. And it also wasn't uncommon for a man who was a hundred pounds bigger than us to to beat us up <laughs> to, to while we were in handcuffs and to abuse their authority in so many different horrendous ways they knew the blind spots in the with the cameras we have cases especially in florida where they're notorious for the women that have been paralyzed by beatings they've received from male officers and the women weren't any better. I, there was a female staff member that that used to walk in the shower when we were showering and look at us and turn her face up and call us disgusting and humiliate us. Even the strip searches, you knew we had to have cavity checks, but the way that they did it was so demeaning and so dehumanizing. And especially because over 80% of women experienced sexual trauma prior to coming to prison, um, to have to relive those traumas and be re-traumatized was, I can't even put into words what it felt like to endure that as an adult and thinking that you were free from that, um, you were away from that, and then to have to go through it again, that's not an uncommon experience in a women's prison. So let me be more direct. We just interviewed uh, a former correctional officer, and she just took us, not me, because I, I lived there for 31 years, but she just gave us like a picture of what really go on. So let me be more direct with you. Was you ever abused, beat up or anything in your time in prison by any guard? Yes. I wasn't in prison at the age of uh, 14, 15. When I first went to law, I wasn't in there two months before I was sexually assaulted by a male guard. While in confinement and being handed my food tray, my, my breasts were grabbed and I actually told and found out that the inspector doing the investigation was golfing buddies with the staff member that did it. And I was told to either write a statement saying that I misinterpreted what he did or I would be placed in protective custody for a minimum of six months. I'm sorry I asked this questions, but we really trying to drive the point home to America and our listeners that these are stories that are reoccurring every time we talk to somebody. It's not just happening in PA. It's not just happening in Florida. This is like something that constantly go on behind these prison walls where our tax dollars are paid for. And I feel some type of way about that because as a taxpayer today, this shit should not be going on in American prisons, period. You would not sent to prison to be sexually assaulted, to be abused by a male that weight two, 300 pounds. Cause we all know how some of these male guards are in these prisons. They're not even in shape to be in these prison jobs to begin with, but they use their weight. They use their they power to abuse, you know, not only is... the man, but the woman. And it's different. I always said it, it's different. It comes down to a woman because as a man, we could put up a fight. 
we could rumble some of some of them guards and, and, and beat some of them. You know, I've done it. I spent seven years in solitary confinement for that. But as a woman, I know that's impossible. You know, you could defend yourself, but not to the point where you could get that attacker off you. You know, so I want people, the listeners to understand that this is an issue that we're going to keep talking about on death by incarceration. On That's why we're doing this whole season on women. Because I feel when we talk about the system, we always talk about the male perspective. We always attach the system to brown and black males. And the woman's become a footnote in the conversation. And the and truth in this of the season, matter, uh, Suave, is that it had, had some of these things happen to women out here, especially in this Me Too culture, they, they would have been prosecuted to the full extent of the law, but somehow because we considered felons by society, we've we're the we're discarded that somehow our humanity is minimized. Like we're no longer human. Like we, we don't deserve protection. We don't deserve justice. And that I think is the biggest problem in our criminal justice system that somehow when you make a mistake or you make a bad decision, that your humanity is negated. And so now we're 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 no longer victims. Even when you're sexually assaulted, even when you're beat, you're not a victim. You're just a felon. You're an inmate. And that's the the narrative that needs to change. And this is why we invited you on the show because we understand that when you go into the system, you don't stop being you don't stop being a woman. You don't stop being a mother. You don't stop being a sister or a friend. You're just a person that allegedly was accused of something, right? And I say allegedly because I don't like to say, well, you was a murderer to anybody because we all been in the same situation. We know how them words are used and thrown around. But yet that don't give anyone the rights to come into your cell, open your door and grab your breasts. That don't give nobody the right come into work into an institution and because he had a bad day or she had a bad day at home, well, I'm a cuff such and set up because you said the wrong thing to the guard that they didn't like and just jump on you and, and, and beat you up. That's that, that don't give nobody the rights to do that. Like I always said, if America only knew what go on the, behind these prison walls, they would be surprised because prison walls are not only up to keep people in, they're also up to keep the public from knowing what's going on, period. And on these volunteers, they come into these prisons and all they want to do is upheld the prison rules instead of having a little humanity. They come under, I want to volunteer, but they really um agents for the institutions. And that's not all volunteers, that's some volunteers. So if any of y'all feel some type of way, good. You know, I want you to feel some type of way about this. But at the end of the day, we talking about our sisters, we talking about our mothers, we talking about our daughters, right? And yes, most of them are brown faces. But when it happens to a white face, then it's a different subject. Then it's, we need dignity in prisons. We need to investigate. So we need the same dignity that you want for your loved ones. We need that for our loved ones. And me and Kevin, we understand because we've both been on the other side. So it's not hard for me to say that when it comes to a white inmate, female, in the prison, it's a different treatment. It's a different treatment. Why? Because some of these women's prison are in these rural communities that are run by white males. They have no business coming into prison because half of these white males that work in these prisons, if you really dive into their background, they got 
alcohol problems, relationship problems, suicidal thoughts. In my 31 years, I could name you at least 20 guards that I know committed suicide. That's the guy that we paying to protect society? Is y'all crazy? Hell no, hell no, nah. Our sisters deserve a, a, a better treatment. And again, like I always say, we're not advocating for all the prisons door to open and let everybody out. That's not what we're saying. We saying that while our sisters are in your custody, they deserve the dignity that every woman deserves. And if we can't deal with that, then stop locking them up. Absolutely. Especially when you think about a budget and they're cutting budgets. So the amount of sanitary napkins or tampons that you receive for your, your menses cycle, like what you, they, we had like a 24 pack of candy liners and that was supposed to last you for a whole month. So if you had a heavier flow or then you were using toilet paper, but you only got two rolls of toilet paper. So you didn't want to waste it because you knew you probably wouldn't get any more, which breeds the opportunity for guards to want to exchange sexual favors for personal hygiene items that are needed. And the fact that in the women's prison, there's not enough supplies these are items that our tax dollars are paying for that you're supposed to get you're not supposed to go without these are items that we the community taxpayers are paying for so i mean i have a i have a daughter that's about to be 13 and when you were explaining or describing your experience getting there in the after the first couple of years i just one i can't even imagine her going to prison i mean so i can't imagine you at 13 how horrifying that must have been suave and i've talked about his experience like you know when he arrived at gratis ford in pennsylvania you know when he was a juvenile and what that was like i mean what was it like when you arrived at a women's prison at 13 years old i can still and it has been almost 25 years since my when I first entered and I can still remember the humiliation of my first strip search like it was yesterday and at 13 it wasn't even two weeks prior to to me being incarcerated that I had been I had experienced sexual abuse I believe the last time I was sexually molested was maybe a week a week a week and a half before the date of my arrest and to go in and have to be told to strip naked in front of someone and to lift up breasts that didn't even exist and to spread open, and to bend over, and then to say, you know, that wasn't sufficient, that I needed to spread more. And, and, and to be, and it was in vulgar terms. I don't even want to repeat how it was said. And to see that it seemed like there was some type of pleasure taken by the guards to degrade me to that extent it's so traumatizing that I, I get emotional 25 years later of how that felt and how dirty and nasty and, and humiliating that experience was. And then to have to do it over and over every time I had a visit, every time I had to go to outside court, any time that an officer felt like maybe there was contraband, it was used as a punishment, even when there was no justification to have the authority to make me do it on command anytime. And then all you had to do was say, well, we felt like she had some contraband on her. And most of the time that wasn't true. It was just done as it was, that is a, a feeling that I don't wish on my worst enemy and especially not on our children that are being incarcerated. You don't want an adult to go through that, let alone a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old little girl. 
because that those are the words we need to use. These are children. These are little girls. These are people's daughters. <laughs> these are not just inmates or felons. And somehow when society puts those labels on it, it justifies it. It makes it okay. And it's not okay because I have a daughter now. And if anyone did that to her at any age, it would not be okay. It would not be okay. The it's the fact that this still goes on. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable, and yet with the system we have, it's incredibly believable. You know, and that's I mean, the sad. Let part me ask you a question, Kev. Yeah. And you know, this probably be the first time I disagree with you on something <laughs> on air, right? Yeah, but why is okay. it unbelievable? Why is well, that's what I said. It's it, I said it's also believable. Oh, okay, because, because of the system we have. Okay, because to me, it's, it's not. We're talking about black women, right? And a lot of people want to shy away from the race issue when it comes to these situations, but it's not. We're talking about people that perhaps the only connect to black and brown faces are when they go to work in these counties. I know guards. They used to come to gratis for and used to set it. The only connection I have to black and brown people is when I come to work because I live in Lackawanna County where you don't see no blacks or Hispanics. A lot of this shit play into the fantasy that some of these guards got. I have the power now to do what I want to do and been fantasizing all my life to do. And I'm going to do it. And who's going to believe that black woman? Who's going to believe that Latina woman? They killers. They, you here because society put you here because you did something bad. And I say to that, who the fuck are you to play God or to play the job? And, and, and prison isn't meant to, 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 to repunish the sentence itself right. was the punishment. Not, you know, You're not supposed not to punish me when I'm there. It should be rehabilitation. It should be healing. It should be restoration because one day we're gonna be free. One day we're going to come home and I'm going to be your neighbor. I'm going to be the one walking past you in Walmart. So the, the goal should be healing and restoration and particularly back to the statistics that over 80% of all women who are incarcerated have experienced some form of sexual abuse, some form of trauma, some sort of physical abuse. So there should definitely be more resources and healing and trauma-informed healing and there is this corporal punishment, this abuse there, it, because it, what are you expecting when you talk about a recidivism rate, when people are returning, what are you expecting? This is what they're subjected to once they, once they're incarcerated. And I wonder if all of these politicians if, that, that are selling this tough on crime as they're going up for a, if there were reality of what happens once that gavel drops. And, and, and they're taken from county jail to prison, would the taxpayers, uh, their votes change if they knew what the reality was? Would they, I think every state would ban juvenile life without parole if they knew what the reality was when these children are transferred to adult prisons and put into adult population, that they would change their minds about sentencing these children to these extreme sentences if they knew what really happened, what the after was, because there's no justice in it. There's a vengeance. It's a now it's a life for a life, but it's not true. Just there's no justice in it. No, there's no there's no good that came out of putting me in prison at 13 years old. I think that society as a whole needs to think about adolescence in a completely different way than it has traditionally viewed this period. I think historically, we think of adolescence 
as a time of trouble, as a time of difficulty. And I think that we, we think of young people that have broken the law and have gotten into the justice system as uh, beyond repair. And I think that the brain science suggests that's just wrong. I mean, we know that over 90% of people that commit serious crimes as juveniles do not go on to become chronic adult criminals. And that means that people are capable of change. And I think the brain science helps us understand why this is, because we now know that the brain remains malleable. The brain remains plastic for far longer than anybody had ever imagined. So we know that the early years of life is a time of tremendous plasticity in the brain. And that's why we've invested so much money in things like early childhood education and high quality childcare, and that's important to do. But what science has shown is that there's a second burst of brain plasticity that takes place during adolescence. And when the brain is plastic, when the brain is malleable, that means we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to intervene, to promote positive growth. And not only that, let me take it a little deeper than that. We all know that some of these kids from suburbia like to dip and dab in urban communities. So imagine this, Mr. Senator, that your daughter end up in prison and she's getting out of prison and guess who's in charge of trying to help her now. Can y'all take a guess? I'll tell you, Katherine Jones, because that's what she does to that. The same 13 year old child that y'all said was no good, that was a murderer. It's today in the mid thirties, I guess. I hope I ain't get that wrong. Yeah, like, mid thirties. <laughs> advocating hard for all women, not just brown women. And it's because of her that a lot of women returning home from prison, black, brown, and white, have decent opportunities because she is one of the few advocates out there that understand what it is to be inside and outside. So yes, 25 years ago, it was her. We all know how this play out in Kensington. You know, there's no shame. I took Kevin down there. All you see is white faces from suburbia down there getting arrested being put in jail and who knows that might be a state rep's daughter it has happened it might be the eagles coach son it has happened so now when they end up in prison who are we gonna call call katherine jones she know how to help you when you come out and put you on the right path so you never know you never know whose door you're gonna be knocking tomorrow and this is why we asking for dignity and respect for our sisters in the penitentiary this is why we always say it's different. It's different from the male prisons. It's, it's you know, the abuse go on in the male prisons, but it's different. And, and, and the, the separation of people between the people that are in the positions that we were in, when they realize that it could be their daughter, it could be their son, because I do have a different perspective of this now, because I have children and I wouldn't care what mistake or what bad decision that my son and daughter made they deserve to be treated with dignity. They deserve to be treated with respect. So when you take yourself off, off of that privileged pedestal where you're saying it can never be me, it can never be me. Imagine if it was, because there's so many children that did not pull the trigger that are in prison for homicide. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. They were with the wrong group of people. They were there and didn't call the police. There's so many different 
aspects to this. It's not all cut and dry. It's not all black and white. It, there's a gray area. So it could be your child. It could be your daughter. It could be your son, your brother, your sister. Would you vote different then? Would you, you vote? Different? Would you be asking for mercy and compassion? Would you be asking for restorative justice? Or would you be asking for vengeance? I say this, right? I'm hearing you talk and I'm all, my mind is clicking, right? And I remember watching this, this film, A Time to Die. We, we watched that camp. Remember the courtroom scene when the lawyer said, ask the jury to close their eyes? So I'm gonna ask our, our listeners, just open your ears and just listen. Two guards open the door, go in this prison cell, and they start abusing, raping this woman. This woman is yelling, nobody hear her. After the fact, she reported, nobody believe it. Now imagine that that woman is white and is your daughter. How will you feel? Kevin, as a white man with a daughter, how will you react? How will you react? Because I think that people need to understand that what Miss Jones went through, it's not rare. This is an everyday thing that happens every day. We just happen to be talking to her. But how would you feel if it's somebody related to you, if it's your daughter in that position? As a white male, what call of action would you demand yeah, for my I mean, white would, legislators and, and senators? I mean, you know what I would do. You know, I, I would definitely, I'd be on the phone immediately to my state senator's office, to my legislator's office, to the DA, to everybody I could get my, my, you know, to pick up the phone. If I didn't take matters into my own hands, and I will say thank God for trauma therapy, you know, because it, it has definitely changed me. If you roll me back 20 years, I would have just taken matters into my own hands. But, you know, now I would have been, there would have been a whole campaign. Are you kidding me? Like tomorrow, GoFundMes and, you know, and a lot of people in the area that I live in would join that. But again, it's like what happened over the last couple of weeks with the girl that disappeared and was killed by her boyfriend, right? Yeah. There's been 700 Native American women in that area over the last decade that have disappeared, or the last 20 years that have disappeared. It doesn't make headline news, well, you know? It's a, and it's so a, It's a different right now. She's yeah. white. Yeah. And yeah. and the truth of the matter is, it, it even if you do a campaign, I mean, look at Cheryl Weimer in Florida, yeah. beaten yeah. into a coma, <laughs> paralyzed. Yeah. And there has been so much advocacy on her behalf. And the Florida Department of Corrections is untouchable. I, w I would love to see the, the push for justice for her that we've seen with other cases of police brutality, that we demand what, what, what justice, that we again? demand prosecution. Cheryl Weimer, I knew her. Everybody that's been in prison for any length of time knew her. And to just be beat so callously as though she didn't matter and for there still not to be justice, for there still not to be any type of indictment or punishment, or to be told when things like this happen to you in prison, it's like your voice doesn't matter. I mean, you would be like my father when he comes to visit me and I'm telling him what happened, that there were four male guards that got me into in a foyer and beat me and then put me in confinement until I healed. On your own, and, with no and, medical and attention. With no medical attention to feel, and, and was handcuffed. And, 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 and you would feel just like my father did. You're unable to protect your child. That no matter how much you scream to the rooftops, no matter how many grievances I filed, nothing was going to happen. And to know that nothing will ever happen unless people out here in society demand justice for those of us that were silenced in there. 
that no, it's never going to change. To be told that, that in the Florida Department of Corrections, if you file a lawsuit, they can countersue you for room and board, and you're probably going to end up owing them money. For them to have those type of protections because our prisons are privatized and our governor has stock in it. Wow. Our legislators have stock in it. Our senators have stock in it. So they're not gonna not put us in prison because they make too much money next to tourism. Prisons is the biggest form of revenue in the state of Florida. We have, we have prisons in every county with the exception of a couple, sometimes two or three. Isn't the investigation like still ongoing for Cheryl Weimer? Yes. So this happened, I mean, this happened a few years back. Yeah, yes. She settled some kind of civil suit, but they still haven't like given any details on the federal investigation into her case. No. And that was what, it, that w the prison that it was at, is that where you were? At, yes. Was it Lowell? I was raised at Lowell. Lowell is not only the largest women's prison in the world, it is the most brutal prison that you can be in. Lowell has, the, they have like a special immunity for guards there, don't they? Yes. Like there's some kind of thing on the books. I, I remember reading about this and it's, I, I don't know all the details so you can fill us in, but from what I understand, Lowell's women's prison, Lowell women's prison, it's in Gainesville or somewhere close to there? Yes. Is that right? It is. Okay. It's in Ocala. Like you said, is the largest women's prison in the, in the world, in the country, definitely. And there's the guards that work there get some kind of special immunity because the abuse is so bad that if not, they would the administration would be spending all of their time in court. Yes. Fighting yes. charges. Yes. Yeah. They have, they have had, there was, a, they have had legislators, they've had senators come in there. And it's so funny because I used to be in there and they tell them before they come. So they yeah. clean up their act. They have us on our best behavior. They're they're addressing us as ma'am when they talk to us instead of inmate. <laughs> and they get to clean up their act for those times when they come. I would look forward to the day when people came in unannounced to observe or came in undercover to observe how the women are treated. You're never told just to follow a direction. It has to be sit down, shut the fuck up. <laughs> you can't be addressed with humanity in a in the women's prison there. It's, and everything is done so dehumanizing and it's huge. There are so many, so many women that, and even the setup with the cages for the dorms, it's like being in dog kennels when you go out to rec. The, the PREA Act was a joke. The Prison Rape Elimination Act, it started being as a weapon where if you made allegations, now we're gonna put you in protective custody for six months, let you out for 24 hours, put you back in six months. You were gonna be punished if you if you told about any type of abuse that was going on inside the prison. They were gonna protect you at all costs. I did several stints in confinement for an extended period of time for um, speaking out about injustices or abuses that happened. And you're just, the culture there is just, just to be quiet and take it. Because if you become an advocate, if you become someone that the whistleblower, you, your your life is going to be a living hell. And I was a law clerk for eight years and I was that one filing grievances. And it made my time really hard and it put a target on my back. I don't think it really said in for me. Actually, it was, I didn't cry for like my first six months. I don't think it really said in. They were so scared that I was fixing to have an emotional breakdown. 
because I didn't, I wasn't grieving. I didn't, you know, go through the remorse stage, which is what most of the people seen when I went into court, which made it seem as though, you know, I had no feelings whatsoever. But um, I learned later when I was going through therapy that what I did was completely shut down and blocked off. And um, they put me on a lot of medications. And I think it was maybe well into my fifth year after I stopped taking all the medication that it actually hit me what actually happened and what um, what the consequences were. I think it was a gradual thing. I don't think there was just one minute I was like, oh my God. I think after I was in the county, maybe nine months was the first time I cried at visitation. And my dad was so happy because he was like, you know, I thought you'd gotten so cold, you know, that, you know, but um, I was just like, I want to go home. And he was like, oh my gosh, I was waiting on you to say that because at one point it was, I was just so happy to be away. You know, and I know that sounds really, really messed up, but there was just some point where I was just away from all that, and I was by myself, and and I was safe. So you get out after serving 17 years. So how are you addressing some of these issues in your current position today? Well, the, one of the things that um, we did at the CFSY was we created a support group specifically for women. Women are the largest growing population in the criminal justice system. Um, but the resources are so minimal, reentry resources. And so in the support group, me and the ladies, all of us former juvenile lifers or children that have served extreme sentences to really bring about healing and support each other, a safe and secure place for us to talk. We have brought in social workers to address some of the, the issues that women face, particularly when you've been in trauma and then now you lived in trauma for years in prison some of the things that face the women when they come home going into abusive or domestic violence situations because they don't know what healthy relationships look like addressing some of the traumas we endured in there and some of the collateral consequences women that have come home past their reproduction age and don't have the joy of being able to be a mother because society threw them away and disappeared the, the years in which they could have had children so addressing those unique challenges that women face um, through various means, giving trainings, opportunities for healing. And now we are expanding that program and coming up with more innovative ways to address the traumas that women endured while they were incarcerated, before they were incarcerated, and after they came home. It's like a, ten, a continual cycle of um, abuse. I've also linked with Change Comes Now an organization in Florida that has been one of the biggest advocates with Cheryl Weimer and many other injustices in the Florida Department of Corrections. And they do some amazing work, um, including get, getting PPE to the women in prison because Lowell is a copious cesspool right now. So not only donating to them, but also lending my voice and my support to that organization. And really just being in communication with the women that I left inside and, and and keeping my ear to the pulse of what's going on there because now I can be the voice. I'm not helpless. I'm not um, in fear of the inspector retaliating against me. So when I hear about some of the things going on, now I can use my voice and my platform to advocate on their behalf. And that's going to be my life's mission until the day that I take my last breath is to be the voice for those that are still silenced in there and still advocate for them to be treated with dignity and humanity and respect, even if that means um, coming out of my own pocket to help organizations that are donating sanitary napkins and tampons inside of the prison right now. So to all the little young sisters out there 
that perhaps don't understand that their behavior could land them in prison or are being abused themselves and haven't spoken up yet and holding that trauma in. What advice did you have to though? Because I want people to understand you don't necessarily have to be in the life to end up in prison. You could be pushed. I was in the suburbs. I know you. you I was a straight A student. I know you (laughs) could be pushed. You could be pushed to the limit. It could be an abuse. It could be anything that triggers something in you that could make you act for that two, three seconds that could cause you to go to jail, right? What advice do you have to anyone, especially the sisters, you know, that don't understand that you could end up in prison because back 20 years ago, it was it was uncommon, you know, for women to be talking about women's in prison. It wasn't happening. They're not gonna lock a woman up for that. Today, 2021, we've seen the numbers and how that population has skyrocketed. So what do we do? What can we tell the young ladies out there that could perhaps stir them away from in prison, from ending up in prison or acting out in a way that could lead them to prison? Because we all know that even though you're the victim or you could be the victim, if you act out in a certain way in the court of law, you are guilty and you are going to prison even though you was the victim or whatever it is that happened to you. I would say to the young queens, the young kings out there, your voice matters and use it. You're not alone. You do not have to make a decision that at at 13, 14, you're not gonna understand the full consequence of before you make a decision that is gonna alter your life and it will forever to reach out to somebody, to speak to use your voice. And I know sometimes that you can be in situations where you feel like you're the only one and you have nowhere to turn, but there is somebody out there. If I did not want to put my phone number out here publicly and have every, I would give my number and say, I'm here, Flave's here, Kevin's here. There are organizations that are here. Call someone, talk to someone, don't be silent. Because I make the the decision to get myself out of a situation and that decision has affected my life, it's to, it affects my children's life. Use your voice somebody. It seems right now that it's never going to end, that this trauma is everything. But I promise you, 5, 10, 15 years from now, when you've reached out for help and you've started to heal, you have such a beautiful life ahead of you and grab hold of that. There is light at the end of the tunnel. In your darkness right now, there is, and I promise you, it's gonna shine brighter than any darkness that you've ever been through. And for all of my women that have experienced some type of trauma that need healing, it's out there. There are people that are willing to listen. I'm one of many, many women that are here for you. On you, Kev. I know you got a lot in your mind, I see you. I just, I mean, Part of this conversation was really hard for me, having a daughter of the age that you went to prison. You know, and this this is stuff we do all the time. Swabby and I talk to people all the time. This this conversation really hits home though. And I know from my own experience and my own trauma growing up and the way I acted out around that, that you can it can happen in in a in a moment. You make one decision and you know, and kids the age that you went to prison don't have the capacity, the mental, emotional capacity to make decisions with the understanding of how that's going to affect the rest of their lives. 
And I think one of the things that we really need to understand as a society, and your your story outlines this in many ways. I mean, you are also uh, a story in the the power of of support and change. I mean, I don't know, actually, this is, it's an interesting thing. So we're always like, oh, anyone can change, anyone can change. But I'm not really sure that I actually think you, when all of this even went down, you were, you weren't, you know, like a cold blooded murderer or, you know, it wasn't because of influences of your, the neighborhood you were living in. I mean, you were in a situation that was untenable. I mean, you were being abused and you were, you were so young you know, I mean, it's just, it's a very different situation, but I also think it's a, it's a, it's a really good example for the rest of us that we need to be much kinder and thoughtful about how we treat our youth, whether or not we think that they're, you know, on their way to a lifetime of, of crime or not. And because just the smallest amount, amount of compassion and understanding and support can go an incredibly long way. And, you know, I know in my own case, like there's always been this like underlying, and I don't know what it is about America, but this is the way we are like this underlying victim blaming around certain things that happen. And and it's like, why should people be in any way ashamed when they're the victim? And I've just never, and especially women, you know, and especially, especially women of color, and then especially even more young women of color, you know, there's like the shame and this like sort of like tight knit, not wanting to tell the family secrets, not wanting to, you know, let people on the outside know what's going on. And we've absolutely we've shown some over and over again, the more that you talk about it, the more you heal and the more your 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 community heals, because then we can identify the problematic community members. You know, we can say, you know, I'm not the one that needs to be blamed here. This adult over here needs to be blamed, you know? And so I, I think that your, your entire story is a lesson in, in, or it can be, if we want it to be a lesson in how to be more compassionate to the victims, the young victims of abuse and whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, those traumas we carry with us. And at 51 years old next Tuesday, oh. uh, my birthday's coming up. Yeah. Well, and I just, I just started learning about trauma therapy a couple of years ago and I've been involved in recovery and, you know, all these other, you know, sort of healing processes in my life. And I didn't even realize that that most of the stuff that I did and even continued to do as an adult was based on the trauma I, I went through as a child, you know? And I think the more that we uncover this and we see generational trauma, especially, but with individuals, the you know, what happens to them as children, the way they carry it out through the rest of their lives. Hopefully we can start to turn a corner around compassion for that. And, you know, the earlier it's treated, the more likely you're not going to have long-term effects. And I think that this is a conversation that should make people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm trying to use the right words because y'all can't get me fired from my own show. So I can say what I want to say. But I'm trying to be, res- I'm trying to be respectful, right? <laughs> Especially you, know, privileged. Oh, um, so yeah, yeah. So I say to all the privileged folks out there that have these positions and as state reps and senators because they think it's a sport, they think it's a game. Y'all should feel uncomfortable because if it was your daughter, we'd be talking about a different call of action. Period. If it was Donald Trump, if it was Ivanka Trump, um, we'd be talking about a different call of action. I guarantee you that. And if y'all feel uncomfortable, so be it. That means that we said something that might motivate you to react and use your position of power to make changes. Yeah. Period. 
No woman should be robbed of her dignity. No woman should be violated. And when you are in the custody of the Department of Correction, there is no consensual sex. It's rape on both sides, male and female. So for those they think, well, she agreed to do this for an extra roll of toilet paper. It's still rape. It's still rape. Recently, the Department of Correction in Arizona put out an article, which I sent it to you, Kev. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and in short, they said that the women in prison use their sexuality to get what they want, to entice the guard. Hello? When you yeah. give training to these officers, that's the first thing you tell the officers. No fraternizing. So all that dumb shit that the women use their sexuality in prison to get what they want, the guards use their power that we, the taxpayers, are paying for to get what they want and beyond. Why don't y'all write about that? Reporters in Arizona, again, no woman should be of her dignity, no matter where she found herself today, period. And if we, as a society, can't understand that, then we got problems. We have problems. I understand that we coming out from a traumatic presidency that <laughs> these type of acts were allowed where America elected a sexual predator to president. So these type of acts are allowed or were allowed. We no longer want to deal with that. It's time for change. It's time for change. You know, these sisters are not being sent to prison to be repunished and re-traumatized. And if we can't house them properly and give them the proper treatment, get them ready to come back home and be productive, then we need not to lock them up and find them treatment out here. Why are we going to lock somebody up and put them in more harm? That's your fault. Then we wonder why they come home and they act out and they can't function in certain circles. It's like Miss Jones said earlier on. We should be trying to bring some healing to these sisters instead of re-traumatizing them. And now, like we do every show, we're going to ask a very special guest for the call of action. You have the mic, Ms. Jones. Kevin, and the first thing I would say is to contact your senators, email them, call them, the First Step Implementation Act, the ban juvenile life without parole nationally across America. We have to end this inhumane cruel practice of sentencing our children to die in prison. And it's only going to be done if you use your voice and let your elected officials know we're not tolerating it anymore. We have to stand for our children. Also, donate and partner with the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth um, as we do our work to support our brothers and sisters as they come home and to also um, support our work to ban juvenile life without parole on the state levels. Join us. Join us in this fight. So we have to be the voice for our kids, especially our black and brown children. This is a race issue. 
it is a systemic issue and, and it's, it's a direct result of slavery in America, mass incarceration, juvenile life without parole. We have to right this wrong. And also urge your district attorneys. We have to change the narrative. We are not on two different sides. It is not those that have harmed and those that have caused harm. We're not on opposite sides. There has to be restoration and healing from both parties in order for true justice to be achieved. So let the directly impacted people come to the table on all sides and come together as one to, to, to create true reform in America. Thank you, Swade. From now on, if anybody asks you, what is your favorite podcast? What are you going to say? Death by incarceration. <laughs> <laughs> and if y'all heard it here first, then y'all know it's official. Kevin McCracken. It's official. And Suave Gonzalez. Death by incarceration. Make sure y'all tune in, subscribe, rate, give us them five stars. Because we are the voice for the voiceless in America. And also tune in to Injustice, also produced by Death by Incarceration. Thank you so much for listening. Please support us on Patreon at Death by Incarceration Podcast. Hit that follow button on all platforms. Share with a friend or 10. Follow us on social media at Death by Incarceration on Instagram, at DB Incarceration on Twitter, at DBI underscore podcast on TikTok. For all booking and media requests, please email Kevin at Death by Incarceration Podcast.com. Death by Incarceration is a production of DBI Media LLC. Produced and written by Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Editing by Jason Usry. Thanks to Crawlspace Media and Glassbox Media for being our partners. Please listen to our other shows, Injustice with Lisa Spees and Spencer Daniels, and watch for our upcoming special on the Camp Hill Riot of 1989. Special thanks to Checker for all their support of the show and to Kevin and Suave individually. We really appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. And please, if you can, Take action. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.